Welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner. Here, as always, my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start off with some really depressing stuff, and that is a climate update. I don't... I'm, it's not depressing. Everything's okay. Uh, I think we're thriving, frankly. Uh, oh, okay, good. I'm sorry. There, I'm sorry, Jake. There, that out. Uh, so, uh, there's a new uh, analysis. The, the month is not over yet. Obviously, the, July 2023 is uh, still has a couple of days left in it. But the uh, uh, a new analysis from Leipzig University uh, finds that this month is on pace and almost certainly will be the hottest month in the 174 years uh, that people have been tracking uh, temperature Pretty data around the world. Right so uh, we did it, everybody! Congratulations. We had 150 years of industrial revolution, and we destroyed That's the planet. Right. That's pretty good, it's, uh, you know. Considering how long <laughs> how long it was around before that to to achieve that much destruction, we should soak it in uh, as a species. Yeah. Good job, I everyone. Think, uh, I think it's great, and uh, so that's that's uh, you know good news. And the other good news, uh, apparently, uh, the the temperature buoys uh, that uh, measure water temperature around Florida uh, this week. Uh, in a couple of spots, or uh, actually, it was in sort of the same general area. They topped 100 degrees two days in a row. 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Obviously, if you're in Celsius, that's uh, a little bit different. But uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit two days in a row. Now, this was uh, some shallow water, so uh, we're not saying that the deep ocean is now 100 degrees and up, but it is the highest temperature, ocean temperature, I think it's ever been recorded. Uh, in fact, I'm sure it, it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is like hot tub stuff. So if you don't have a hot tub, uh, you can just head up to Florida and get in the ocean and have the same effect. Uh, I think we're, we're making things more efficient, uh, giving people more options for their, their relaxation. Uh, it's, uh, it's great stuff. Yes, it, it's great stuff. And also apparently a bunch of whales have been killing themselves, which is definitely a good sign for the climate. Let's move on now to the Knesset vote in Israel. Yes. Uh, so we did a special with uh, Udi, our, our Israel desk, uh, about this. So if people want to check that out, I would uh, you know definitely recommend that. But what has happened here is the Knesset on uh, Monday past basically the first sorry jerick i have to do a jew jew insert here it's yeah. knesset knesset i know knesset. i usually say knesset. knesset i don't know what what happened to me there but the knesset i'll forgive you this time of but course don't correct. let it happen again <laughs> uh you are of course correct the the knesset passed the first uh tranche i guess you could say of the judicial overhaul that benjamin Netanyahu and his far-right cabinet have been pushing uh for months now this is the some of the lowest hanging fruit uh this is, we, when, and again, we talk about this with Udi. It's sort of uh, some of the less controversial or one of the less controversial aspects of the overall. Uh, it's the uh, excision of what's known as the reasonability clause, which gives the court wide latitude to take cases that other Supreme Courts, Supreme Courts in other countries might not necessarily have the latitude to take on. So the opposition here, because of that, I think, uh, the opposition here hasn't been as 
strident uh, as it's been previously when talking about some of the more controversial elements uh, of the reform or the overhaul, I should say, uh, you know, like stripping the court basically of its power to overrule uh, the Knesset and allowing the Knesset to to just ignore court rulings or overrule them with a simple majority vote. That's extraordinarily com- uh, controversial. Um, and this is not that. So there have been some protests. Uh, there's been uh, a, a number of Israeli military reservists have uh, not reported for duty or you know, threatening not to report for duty. Um, we haven't seen anything on the order of, of the general strike or the kind of massive uh, outpouring that, that took place earlier this year and, and pause kind of put a hold on the whole overhaul project. But nevertheless, it's, it's sort of rolling now. Uh, this first piece has passed. The Supreme Court itself, oddly enough, is uh, apparently agreeing to hear an appeal to the new law, which will it will do sometime in September. This, uh, of course, puts the court in the awkward position of ruling on its own, the scope of its own authority, uh, which seems a little bit strange. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I guess this is, I mean, this is what you do. You appeal a law to the Supreme Court. What else can you do? So that's setting up a real political showdown, potentially, if the court were to decide against this law uh, and for its own authority, uh, I think the political crisis that Israel is already in, there's a potential for it to get much, much more severe and I, without a necessarily an obvious way out because it's such a, a unique situation. Thanks, Derek. Um, let's talk now about the Cambodian election and Hun Sen stepping down. Yes, uh, Cambodia held an election on Sunday. The Cambodian People's Party, the ruling party of Cambodia, won. There was no question about that. There was no op- uh, organized opposition or running against it in Sunday's election. Uh, I believe it won uh, 120 of the 125 seats uh, in the Cambodian National Assembly. Uh, the only real speculation about this election was whether Hun Sen would, would announce that he's semi-retiring afterward uh, there's been talk for a couple of years now at least that he was planning to hand power over to his son Hun Menet who's currently uh, the commander of the uh, Royal Cambodian Army that's been brewing there was speculation that he might do it right after as part of a, a bigger overhaul in the cabinet sort of a changing of the guard to the next generation type of thing there was also, I mean, I also saw speculation that he might wait a, a year or two and, and oversee the younger generation filling up these cabinet ministries and then step down and hand power over uh, to Hun Menet. But he decided on the former. He announced uh, just a couple of days after the election that he would be stepping down. Hun Menet is uh, set to take office officially on August 22nd. All he had to say today about his future plans was this. What will you do for the country? Uh, no comment on that, please. Hun Sen is going to remain in the National Assembly, so he's not quitting politics altogether or retiring altogether. And uh, there is, I guess, the compromise position here is that uh, he's going to retain the ability to step in if Hun Menet were to completely face plant uh, in this job. He would be able to to, to step back in to take over the prime minister's chair again, uh, just to sort of ease things or, or kind of calm things down. Uh, he's up Ben. How nice. Of prime, him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, good, good for him. Uh, and has been prime minister uh, in one form or another for almost 40 years. Uh, so this certainly is a, uh, a changing, uh, of the guard, a, a new era, but, uh, 
you know, and also, you know, sort of sets that office up now as an inherited uh, position, which is, is somewhat interesting in a country that already has a monarchy to have another ruling family with the, uh, admittedly with the real power the monarchy is kind of a, uh, kind of a symbolic thing, but, um, yeah, just, uh, sort of an interesting development there. Nice symmetry. All right. Uh, Derek, can you give us an update on the Sudan war? Yes, just briefly, uh, the Sudan conflict between the military and the rapid support forces uh, hit 100 days on Sunday. There is no end in sight, seemingly. Uh, neither side is seriously participating uh, in truce talks. I believe they both sent representatives now to Jeddah, back to Jeddah, for reopening of those kind of ceasefire talks, but there's no indication that they're going anywhere. There have been indications uh, around the... Uh, anniversary, if you want to call it that, of a widening in the conflict. Uh, there's serious fighting reported, not just in Khartoum, not just in West Darfur, which has been have been the two places that where most of the violence has been seemingly located. But now that violence has spread uh, into South Darfur state, uh, North Kordofan state. There's there have been some reports of violence in South Kordofan state and other parts of Darfur, uh, but these two, uh, South Darfur and North Kordofan, seem to be uh, really intensifying. There's also also was a report this week that the RSF had moved into the uh, Jazeera state, which is located south of Khartoum. Uh, it's sort of positioned between uh, the Blue and White Nile rivers and uh, ha- is home to a number of refugees from the capital, people who have fled the fighting in the capital. The RSF apparently moved in there, which has prompted the military to conduct airstrikes. Uh, in that state, uh, so not great when you uh, think about the number of displaced people who are trying to to avoid the fighting. Now the fighting has come to them. Otherwise, you know, it's it's sort of status quo. I think uh, as far as uh, as far as the conflict is concerned. Thanks, Derek. Could you give us an update on the Ethiopia food crisis? Yes, people may be aware, and I think we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago that the U.S. government and the United Nations decided last month in in early June to cut all food aid to Ethiopia. Uh, The USAID did it first, and then the UN uh, World Food Program followed. This is ostensibly because they had evidence of food aid being uh, diverted to uh, the Ethiopian military or other players in in the country uh, away from the people who needed it. Now, this said, come after uh, USAID and the UN had already suspended food aid specifically to the Tigray region where it is most badly needed because people are still unable to kind of fend for themselves after the war in that region, uh, the the very devastating war in that region. So, you know, this was ostensibly done to, I guess, uh, you know, force the Ethiopian government to do something about these diversions. Uh, but there was a piece in uh, at Inkstick uh, Media earlier this week just outlining how devastating this has been uh unfortunately uh hundreds of people uh have died due to starvation related causes uh, you know whether it was outright starvation or you know something just related to the lack of food and sent just since the the suspension there is no evidence that the ethiopian government or the actors who have been diverting food aid have changed anything uh what there is evidence of is that this decision to suspend all food aid period is coming down hardest obviously on the people who need that food aid the most so it's a uh, 
probably not a good decision by the U.S. and one that you would hope somebody will reverse uh, as soon as possible. Let's talk about the coup in Niger. Yes, uh, this seems to be a done deal as far as I can tell, although there was some questions uh, on Wednesday as to uh, whether it was actually going to come off. The uh, report started early Wednesday morning out of Niger that uh, the presidential guard, or at least a unit of the presidential guard, had surrounded the presidential palace uh, in Niamey, uh, and was holding Mohamed Bazoum, the, the president of Niger, prisoner, uh, effectively under house arrest. During the day, there were various, you know, it was uh, the uh, expected international condemnation from the African Union, from the economic community of West African states, the French government, which still, of course, views itself as the uh, post-colonial uh, overseer of West Africa. Uh, the U.S. government, uh, Anthony Blinken, warned at one point that uh, aid could aid to Niger could be cut off. Uh, so there was an outpouring internationally of, of kind of condemnation and calls for Bazoom to be released. It was unclear for much of the day whether this coup was going to succeed, and it's starting to seem like maybe it was fizzling out uh, after several hours went by and there was no real update. And Bazoom's office was still tweeting things like, the president's fine, and uh, you know we're going to stop this illegal attempt to take power, that sort of thing. But on Thursday morning came a promise from the president that democracy will remain intact. Mohamed Bazoum saying in a social media post, the hard-won achievements will be safeguarded, and that all Nigerians who love democracy and freedom will see to it. Um, There were reports, unconfirmed reports, that the army was moving into the capital to stop the the presidential guard to kind of, uh, you know, put an end to the coup. That all seems to have fizzled out overnight. Late Wednesday, a group of Coup plotters appeared on state TV, uh, sort of national television, to announce that Bazoum had been removed. This was something I think you know people have been waiting for to see if it would uh, see if the coup was actually coming off. Uh, on Thursday morning, the uh, senior command of the Nigerian military announced that it was also supporting the coup. It said to to avoid bloodshed. Um, but it's it supported the removal of uh, Bazoum from office. The central figure here appears to be the commander of the presidential guards. His name is uh, Omar Chiani. There's no confirmation of that, but a number of local kind of sources have said uh, he's the driving force behind this and would presumably emerge as the uh, leader of the junta that's now apparently taken over. Uh, Bazoum's office, or Bazoum uh, himself even, is is still talking online through social media about reversing this coup and uh, maintaining civilian governments that that's probably uh, a bit far-fetched at this point but I really don't know his status I assume he's still being bottled up in the palace but if he's tweeting uh, or xing sorry I, I I lost my head for a second it's now xing uh, but he's xing messages about you know preserving democracy etc then I assume that means he's not in custody uh, but it's just being still kind of kept bottled up in the, the presidential palace. Uh, beyond that, I don't really know very much at this point. I think certainly more will be uh, become known uh, as things unfold. This is the sixth coup uh, in a West African country in the last three years. 
uh, if you expand geographically slightly to include Chad and it's the seventh coup in the West and Central uh, Africa regions uh, in the last three years. The, the military, at least the, the coup plotters when they were on TV Wednesday night, cited a lot of the same things that the coup leaders in Mali and Burkina Faso did, uh, poor governance, uh, the deteriorating security situation under the threat of jihadist violence. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of boilerplate language at this point. It's now the third time we've seen uh, a military junta take over under those uh, auspices. So I don't know how much credence to give that. Uh, what this really could have implications for is the French-led uh, international, Western, mostly counterterrorism mission in West Africa. Niger was sort of the last country now that Mali and Burkina Faso had kicked international troops out and particularly French troops out. Niger was sort of the last country in the Sahel that was welcoming those forces. And I would suspect this hunt is going to go down the same road as the other two and kick them out. I don't know that obviously yet, but uh, you know, that's uh, geopolitically, that's probably the main thing that I would uh, think, think of, think about in terms of implications at this point. I believe it's called zeding. Derek, so just so you know. Oh, it's seating. It's not okay. So it's not Xing. I thought he was trying to make it Xing. Okay. Now, now maybe I'll, maybe I could uh, be wrong. Listeners at Derek with the response. Let's move on now <laughs> to talk uh, talk a bit about Ukraine. And I gotta gotta say, Derek, uh, people uh, who saw our appearance on the Majority Report, they were not they were not fans of my uh, my takes on Ukraine. So if anyone no, wants I'm, to. I'm- Check out some really pissed off comment sections. Uh, check it out. But Derek, what's been going on in Ukraine? So the, the two stories this week have been Russian airstrikes on uh, a number of cities. They focused particularly heavily on uh, Odessa, uh, still on uh, Mykolaiv. The, the two, these are the two uh, kind of main port or port connected cities. Uh, left under Ukrainian control on the Black Sea. Uh, they've also bombarded Ukrainian ports on the Danube River. These are facilities that have been proposed as alternatives to the Black Sea for Ukrainian grain exports. Um, on Saturday, uh, there was a, a, a Ukrainian drone strike on an ammunition depot in Crimea. I believe there was another one Monday or Tuesday. So there's been some uh, Ukrainian attacks uh, in Crimea. The Russian bombardment, in, in addition to causing dozens of casualties, uh, also apparently seriously damaged uh, uh, the what's known as the Transfiguration Cathedral, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Odessa. Uh, there are a number of other important architectural sites in Odessa that have been badly damaged in this recent round of bombardments. So there's been some outrage uh, generated because of that. In terms of the fighting on the ground uh the pentagon or two i should say two anonymous pentagon officials talked to the new york times uh in a piece that appeared on wednesday suggesting that the ukrainian military may have moved into a new phase and it's counteroffensive. uh they're they're apparently pushing reserves into the front uh this is something the u.s has been kind of prodding them to do for some time now so they, this may be their attempt to make a a, a serious breakthrough in the russian line uh, there have been Russian corroboration to some degree about kind of large-scale Ukrainian attacks at a couple of points along the front line. Uh, there's also been a, a little bit of a the Ukrainian advance apparently south of Bakhmut, 
Uh, we're still sort of talking about that city on some level. This is sort of, I think, make or break time for the counteroffensive. If if they do manage to uh, break through the Russian line and and things start to develop more quickly, then uh, you're going to see a push to, uh, you know, intensify the the weapons flow to Ukraine, and, and you know that's going to going to probably lead to some quick developments. If they don't, then I think it's it's maybe time to reconsider uh, the counteroffensive plan in general. But we'll see. I don't have any information on whether it's been successful or not to this point. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Let's give a quick update on the Spanish election. But much like the Israel judicial reform, we did a special episode with Nando Vila. So if you really want an in-depth dive, check that out. Yes. Sunday's Spanish parliamentary election was expected to go to the right wing, the the alliance between the conservative People's Party and the far-right Vox Party. Polling had indicated that they would squeeze out, eke out a, a slim majority, which is 176 seats in the the Chamber of Deputies, to something of a surprise. Not a huge surprise in the sense that uh, the polling really suggested that this race was going to turn on a knife's edge, but to, you know, a little bit of a surprise. They failed uh, to clear that hurdle. The People's Party Vox Coalition, uh, at this point, I think, controls 166 seats coming out of the election they added a one a small party that, that won a single seat so they've got 167 seats total that's the most recent information i've heard uh the problem for the people's party which did in uh, as an individual party win more seats than any other party in in the election uh and thus will get first crack at forming a coalition their problem is that as long as they're in a coalition with vox they're not going to be able to attract probably not going to be able to attract uh, any support from any of the other small uh, parties that could put them over the top. And of course, if they divorce themselves from Vox, then they have, I think Vox won 33 seats. So they've got a 33 seat all that they have to fill. They're in sort of a, a no win situation, I think at this point in terms of, of trying to get to a majority. So that puts the Spanish socialist party led by current prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, possibly in the driver's seat. Uh, he and his, uh, left-wing allies control fewer total seats than the People's Party Vox coalition, but they probably have a better path, uh, a more uh, an easier path, I should say, to amassing a majority. We'll have to wait and see. And Sanchez isn't going to get a, get really a crack at, at negotiating coalition until after uh, the People's Party tries and likely fails. So it could take a little bit of time to see how this plays out. But uh, I would say you're probably looking at uh, a continuation, more or less, of the current uh, Spanish government with Sanchez and the the socialists and the the main kind of uh, driver's seat. Thanks, Derek. Let's do an update on the new Cold War. Yes, uh, there are a few things to note here. Uh, people are probably probably were aware that John Kerry was in China last week to try and talk about climate issues. He met a number of senior Chinese climate officials and left on Wednesday with an agreement to sort of keep talking. He's one of a number of U.S. officials who have visited China of late. uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, Anthony Blinken, the the Secretary of State have made visits and they've all ended sort of in the same way with let's, you know, let's keep talking. Nothing, not deciding anything major, just deciding to keep talking, which in itself is a welcome 
a break from the last several months of pretty much no communication between uh, the U.S. and China on anything. However, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal that, that broke shortly after Kerry left of the, apparently a Chinese hacking, uh, I assume connected with the government, that was certainly the implication, that has been kind of collecting data on the U.S. ambassador in China, Nicholas Burns, uh, the assistant secretary of state for East Asia, Daniel Crittenbrink, uh, a few other U.S. officials. This is the kind of thing like the horrifying balloon of death earlier this year that can turn uh, the relationship sour again very quickly. Now, it has not in the days since the story broke led to any significant kind of outpouring of hostility or outrage. So that's probably a, a positive sign, but it's still there. And, and as I say, the balloon of death precedent could still apply here. So uh, it's something to something to monitor. The other thing that I wanted to note here is the chaos to some degree in Chinese or China's foreign ministry. Uh, foreign minister uh, Qin Gong, who had only been on the job for about seven months, was abruptly fired uh, at a meeting of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress on Tuesday. Uh, Qin had not been seen, still has not been seen for over a month at this point. Uh, in public. So uh, some very strange thing going on here. The the ministry initially explained his absence uh, as the result of health issues, but kind of never really followed up on that. And there's no information as to what those health issues might have been uh, if they were even uh, real. He's been replaced by his predecessor, Wang Yi. It's unclear whether that's going to be a uh, temporary replacement. Wang Yi was sort of promoted to a higher level position. He is the senior a diplomat in China. Um, when Chin took over in December, Wang Yi, Wang Yi was sort of uh, moved up to a more senior position in the the party. Uh, but he's now taken over the the foreign ministry again. Whether he will remain there is in just sort of caretaker mode until they uh, find somebody else. But again, there's no no real explanation for this uh, for for Chin to uh, be removed after such a short period of time. You assume. There was some kind of falling out, perhaps, uh, with Xi Jinping or some some other faction in the party. Uh, Qin and, and Xi were known to be quite close, so I don't know uh, what might have happened there or what Qin might have done uh, to uh, to get himself sacked, but that is uh, that is where things stand. And Blinken was in the Pacific, right? Yes, Anthony Blinken was in Tonga uh, on Wednesday to open the new U.S. embassy in Nukualofa, uh, and uh, which is part, obviously, of the uh, bigger project to expand the U.S. diplomatic footprint in uh, in the Pacific Islands, where uh, a number of the emb- the number of countries whose embassies have been consolidated or you know lumped together, uh, we're now reopening embassies specifically for those countries, and and you know taking other steps to uh, to kind of let everybody know that the U.S. is here for you, I guess, in, in that sense. Blinken gave his what's again kind of a boilerplate speech at this point about you know how Chinese engagement is is bad and problematic and the U.S. is good and people should be friends with the U.S. not China. Of course, we don't mind. Uh, he said if China engages in the Pacific Islands, which is either very generous of us to say that it's okay, uh, we, we don't have a you know a huge problem with it, but we do think that China is bad and, and people should not talk to them. So, you know, other than the embassy opening, that was sort of the main thrust of the visit was to give the, the same 
patronizing speech to the Pacific Island nations that, uh, you know, they need to watch out for that mean China and, uh, you know, come, come be friends with us instead. It was a beautiful speech, Derek. I disagree. Um, before we go, uh, Derek, I, I know you wanted to say something about um, recent life events. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Uh, yeah, I just want to say uh, listeners may notice a number of episodes uh, that uh, have come out recently or will be coming out soon where Danny is uh, on his own. And uh, that's because my dad died on Tuesday. Um, sorry. He had been in hospice for several days, and uh, he passed peacefully. And uh, I don't want to do this. Okay, uh, he was a, a, a great husband and father and grandfather. Uh, we will miss him terribly. I know he was a fan of this show. He was at least happy that it was successful. So uh, but I just wanted to. Uh, he had good taste. That's a, a right. Man of impeccable taste. <laughs> you can't can't fault him for his taste. Uh, and I just wanted to let people know uh, if I'm a little bit, you know, here or there in terms of being on the show. Uh, again, this has been over the past couple of weeks and, and moving forward, I may need to take some time to uh, you know, help my mom out and things of that nature. So that's why uh, I want to thank you, Danny, for for picking up the slack. And, uh, you know, that's that's all I just wanted to, to let people know. Well, thank you for letting us know, Derek. And I'm sure not only myself and Jake, but also the entire community of Prestige Heads is behind you in this difficult time. Everyone, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again soon. Bye.